up on today's show, nuclear power advocates are encouraged. There's some baby steps, they're calling it, some progress in the federal budget. Mosquito season fast approaching. Like it or not, it's coming. We'll talk with Edmonton's bug guy. And should we accept refugees not only from Ukraine, but from Russia too? We'll have that conversation. In last week's federal budget, green energy, low emission energy, all of that talk was a big feature in the federal budget. It's been a big feature of everything they've done for the last little while. Um, And in the budget, there was a bit of money. And I'm not going to say it was a ton of money, but there was money for nuclear power. It's about $120 million. Now, that's a lot of money to you and I, but literally a drop in the bucket relative to, you know, everything else in the budget. We're talking about billions and billions and billions, but still, it's in there. It's in there. And that has given some encouragement to people who advocate for nuclear, including Dr. Christopher Kiefer, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, who has joined us here on the show before, and uh, we're glad that he could join us again this morning. Uh, Dr. Kiefer, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Hi, Shay. It's wonderful to be back. Um, So, you know, we've talked a lot before about the work you've been doing on advancing nuclear energy in Canada. So obviously, I'm I'm assuming you were pleased to see a mention in the budget and even a little bit of funding, right? Well, you know, I I think it's a baby step, um, but it's a very, very significant step because unfortunately, uh, this government uh, took a a turn towards uh, being, I won't say hostile, but to really abandoning um, what had been pretty encouraging uh, support for nuclear under the likes of Seamus O'Regan. So, indifferent would that be the way? You know, like they like they weren't advancing it. They were they were just sort of ho hum. They weren't no, paying attention. No, I mean, I, no. The budget is significant because a month ago, um, in the Canada Green Bond Framework, nuclear, uh, which again delivered North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction, which uh, got rid of our smog days in Ontario. And which makes you know fifty percent of the world's medical isotopes, which are vital in healthcare, was listed alongside gambling, tobacco manufacturing, uh, arms manufacturing yeah. as being excluded as a, as a sin stock. Um, so to go a month later to saying nuclear is going to get some funding, and most importantly, uh, nuclear is going to be uh, included in the mandate of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. Um, this is. A baby step, but really it's a sea change for this government. Uh, Okay, so let's break it down a little bit here. What's the money for? What is it being earmarked for? So, so far, it's only towards uh, small modular reactors, uh, which is a bit disappointing to me, and I'll get into why later. Um, So there's there's money towards regulation of SMRs. Uh, It's it's not a new technology. This is old nuclear technology, but it's new that it's at this this smaller scale, etc. So there's, you know, the nuclear industry, there's endless regulation that has to happen. So there's money towards that. There's money towards uh, spent fuel management. It's, It's more innovation money than actually getting the infrastructure built that we need if we're to meet our net zero goals, which is staggering, right? In order to double our electric grid across this country to deliver on things like electrifying transportation, um, heating more with electricity, et cetera, we need the equivalent of 113 Site C dams built across this country or 96 large candy reactors. So as you were saying, I mean, 120 million to you and I is an astronomical amount of money, um, but these are big projects and we are freeloading off of the infrastructure that our ancestors built. And we need to get building. If if it is really true that we care about climate and, you know, in the modern uh, context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, energy security. Um, okay, so uh, it's a baby step. What's the timing? Mean, the timeline seems to be an issue for me, and, and help me understand this better. We're taking baby steps at a time when I think a lot of people think we need to be running full speed ahead. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, as I was saying, we just we just have this staggering amount of infrastructure to build. Um, the government uh, was really excited about their battery electric vehicle facility. They're opening here in Ontario and Windsor. That's great. We're going to need the electric vehicles. That's the easy part. It's easy to build the sort of end consumer device. How are we going to charge this enormous vehicle fleet? You know, and we we have seen in places, say, like California, that have gone really heavy on wind and solar, they've actually had threatened blackouts because of the unreliability of those sources, such that they've told people, please don't charge your electric vehicle today. And, you know, what's going to happen when we say, okay, we're not selling any more internal combustion engines in vehicles by 2030 or 2035, and you don't have the energy infrastructure to charge them? Canadians aren't going to put up with that. So, so where do we go? What's next? Well, you know, my organization and was really pushing the federal government to do something similar to what Boris Johnson government just did in the UK, which is to say we need to get serious about this. Um, they've gone from this idea of maybe we'll build a reactor every decade to we're going to build a reactor every year. Now, obviously, that takes some lead time to get going on, and there's ways to streamline the process. And, you know, the urgency in the UK should be climate change. That's what they say, at least. But it's really been the fact that, you know, natural gas prices have gone through the roof. And Europe said, we're not going to use Russian gas anymore and and fund the slaughter of Ukraine. Um, So I think Canada needs to do something similar. And, you know, it's a provincial jurisdiction to build new, you know, generation, to build new power plants. Uh, But the federal government can absolutely facilitate that. So we think really there needs to be a vehicle within government um, to help help facilitate that and, and really to lay out a bold vision for how we get this infrastructure built. And, you know, that might sound crazy to Canadians because we've probably been overspending in the last little while, but we have to look at what the smart investments are. Yeah. And nuclear nuclear is really the ultimate economic stimulus because we control the whole supply chain from the uranium mines to the fuel fabrication to the power plants. So every dollar that we invest in nuclear returns a dollar forty in GDP. So, you know... We have to be wise about and, and financial stewards. We do need to spend a lot of money, but let's do it in a way that strengthens Canadian security, that builds Canadian prosperity, and is the biggest bang for our buck in decarbonization. We've proven that here in Ontario with our coal phases. You mentioned SMRs. I know there's a provincial agreement, including the province of Alberta, to get more involved with SMRs. What's the problem with SMRs? I mean, I thought that was sort of the way out of this. You know SMRs are a vital part of the solution, right? Especially in smaller grids, like say in Saskatchewan, or up north with even smaller reactors. Because we have, you know, none of it spent a quarter billion dollars importing fossil fuels. That's not uh, not economically sustainable, and it's <clears throat> it's risky. You know, if, if that ship can't dock and offload its fuel in the right time of year, it's it's a big problem. So there's a role for them. The problem is, is that you know. Nuclear only seems to have the social and and political license uh, to be very modest in its aspirations. Yeah. But we, like I said, we need to build a lot of infrastructure if we're going to charge those vehicles. So we absolutely need large candy reactors, and we should not be allowing any of our current nuclear infrastructure to close. We need to make the investments, and we are um, to to refurbish and keep the candor fleet we have online. Which is what the situation is in Pickering, right? I mean, one of our large reactors is being mothballed. Thank you for, for bringing that to the attention of your Alberta listeners. I know this is an Ontario issue, but it actually is. It affects the whole country. It's hard to imagine the amount of power you can get out of a power plant the size of a shopping mall or a Costco, right? Yeah. 
But that power plant provides all the power that Ontario needs for, you know, for its, what we call its baseload needs. And if we don't refurbish it, and there's still time to do that, we're going to lose all of the national progress we've made in reducing emissions since 2005. It's, it's astounding when you think about it. Nuclear is so low carbon. When you replace that with gas, it's the equivalent of taking 8 million transatlantic flights worth of carbon. So and we can't let that happen. If, if the talk is real, if we're going to walk the talk. Yeah. And that's what this government needs to demonstrate. Because I genuinely believe that they feel in their hearts we need to do something urgently about climate change. It's time to walk the talk. Dr. Kiefer, I'm getting I'm getting texts as we talk saying, okay, what about the waste? What about the waste? What about the waste? That is a con- you know the perception that is out there, right? Absolutely. No, and that's something we need to talk about because really we've made a mountain out of a molehill. And let me explain why, because that's a controversial statement. You know, we have a solution and really the solution, which is to put it in the deep geologic repository. Now that's complicated. It's a lot of engineering, but let me break it down to you to one thing that I think is really going to convince the public on this. The rock, the geology, is the barrier. So the rock that we're looking to put this waste in, water can only move a, a meter in a million years through this rock. So we have to think, what's the mechanism for this waste to get out into the water, into the water tables, to the, to the surface? Well, it has to be dissolved in water, which it's, it's not a liquid. This is solid ceramic yeah, pellets yeah. of fuel. We just get through all the engineered barriers, dissolve it, and carry it in solution. And, you know, like, like salt water, essentially, right? These radioisotopes need to move. And it takes a million years to move a meter. In one centimeter, you're down to the natural radioactivity of the ore from which, you know, we, we pulled the, the uranium in Saskatchewan. So we honestly, we have the solutions. Human beings are brilliant. We're great engineers. We're good problem solvers. The environmental NGOs have unfortunately blown this issue way out of control. And, and the industry's done a terrible job on messaging on this. But, you know, the rock is the barrier. We're thinking geologic timeframes of, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah. of years. Well, let's talk about the geological barriers right? And putting it in that rock is a very safe bet, and it's much better than what we're doing right now, which is throwing all of our waste and emissions into the atmosphere and cooking the planet. Good argument. I appreciate your time, Dr. Kiefer. Unfortunately, I am out of time, but I do appreciate you joining us. We'll chat again soon. Beautiful, Shay. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Christopher Kiefer, who is president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. talk about mosquitoes now unfortunately for all of us we know mosquitoes are just that's part of life it's part of life in this part of the world there's nothing you can do about it they're going to be here and uh, we're going to have to deal with them and we've got strategies to do that typically we rely on cities to help us out with some of the larger scale spraying and stuff like that we know that's not going to happen in all alberta communities this year which has led to a lot of discussions but first of all let's find out is there any way even to predict you know, what the situation is when it comes to mosquitoes. We're going to chat now with Mike Jenkins, who is, we just call him the bug guy, Edmonton's bug guy. He's fabulous. We love talking to him. He knows everything about bugs. He works for the city of Edmonton, uh, and we're delighted he could join us now. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. So when we take a look at this, is it possible, like sitting here, you know, mid-April to say, boy, we're going to have a bad year for mosquitoes. Can you get that, you know, pulled back and, and take a look at it, or do you need to wait until the conditions really develop? 
You really do need to wait until conditions develop. Uh, our mosquito populations in particular are largely floodwater species, yep. so they're developing following any precipitation event. Uh, so we can have a really dry spring, uh, and then if we get a wet May or June, uh, we get mosquito hatching from those downpours, and we get uh, large numbers of mosquitoes, so it's really impossible to predict more than about a week in advance. Now, typically, uh, and, I've, and I've checked, and I think it's just about every major municipality in Alberta, uh, goes about trying to to handle things this time of year, maybe into May, something like that, with large-scale spraying programs. Talk about those for a second. When we target them with pesticides, what are we doing? It's it's a larvicide, right? Yes. So uh, the mosquitoes start out in an aquatic larval stage. Uh, they're in very temporary habitats where there's very little else developing in those habitats. Um, so we target those uh, conditions when they're in very discrete uh environmental conditions. Uh, they're not spread out through the entire landscape. Uh, they're just in those uh, ponds, and we uh, reduce their numbers with that larvicide. Uh, the larvicides that we use and are used across Canada uh, are specific to just mosquito larvae and a few other uh, families of aquatic flies, which typically are not found uh, in large numbers in those temporary ponds. Uh, so the uh, larvicide that's used in those locations is pretty much just reducing the mosquito numbers. Uh, and the goal is to reduce those waves of mosquitoes that come after each precipitation event, one of which is actually the melting snow. Uh, so we have a lot of species that develop in that snow melt pools. Yeah. Uh, basically, as soon as it starts melting, uh, they're out there. Even if you go now and break the ice, you'll actually find the larvae developing underneath the water there. Oh, so mosquito season is well underway then. Indeed it is, yeah. <laughs> now, Mike, these these pesticides, like you say, is, is, are they considered sort of, I don't want to say universal, but um, it's sort of we're all using the same thing across the country and across North America. This is what's used by everybody, sort of a, a best standard of practice kind of thing? Yes, so this is the, the standard pesticide that's used uh, not just in North America and Europe, but uh, across the world as the primary uh, uh, way of reducing mosquito larvae. Um, there are some other products that are also used for trying to go after the adult mosquitoes, uh, but that's uh, much less effective and uh, affects a lot more of the ecosystem. Uh, you're exposing everything, all the other insects, uh, birds, uh, and wildlife to those pesticides. Yeah. Uh, so we, we don't use those in Edmonton. Uh, ours is just geared towards the larviciding. Um, now, I know in Calgary and I know in Edmonton that was done aerially right through helicopters, still is in Calgary. They'll still be using helicopters with aerial application. That'll be removed in Edmonton. But there's other ways these larvicides are deployed, right? You actually have people that go into ditches and, and do it manually almost, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, we still have our uh, roadside ditch and our ground crews are going out there and reducing those uh, larvae in those sites where they're developing. The roadside ditches in particular, practically every mile of road in the, the city and in the surrounding areas has two miles of ditch uh, associated with it. Uh, and those ditch habitats that are specifically designed to hold water for just a few days after any rainfall event are perfect habitats for mosquitoes. And we see large numbers of mosquitoes developing in those, and they're a major source of uh, the mosquitoes that come into the city. Um, 
So we're still targeting those. Uh, we're still hitting uh, anything that's in ravines, parks, industrial areas, along LRT tracks, uh, things like that within the city. Um, because those are both uh, highly productive habitats and are closer to residences, uh, parks, schools, uh, places where people are actually uh, uh during the activity, although it's a, a smaller amount of the pesticides and everything we're using, uh, it's a bigger bang for a buck. We're uh, able to get um, a, a pretty effective control of the mosquito population using much fewer pesticides without the aerial program. Hey, Mike, is there any way of knowing, like, I know we, we spray in this area, we spray in outlying areas, we spray in the River Valley, things like that. How far does a mosquito move? Like, if, if you target a mosquito two kilometers outside of the city or where people would, you know, be populating an area. Um, can you be fairly confident that those mosquitoes won't travel in? Like, do we have any idea how far they actually move? Yeah, uh, it depends a lot on the species. So some species don't move very far. There's some in uh, the tropical areas that might only move a few meters from where they actually emerge. Uh, but our uh, floodwater species in particular, our main one, uh, 80s vexans, can actually fly 10 to 25 kilometers. Oh, wow. Um, we've actually done some mark and recapture experiments. We released a whole bunch of uh, fluorescent painted uh, uh, mosquitoes up uh, near Villeneuve and Riviera Bar, and we were actually able to uh, collect them again a couple days later in traps in the river valley. Okay, you got to explain this. How do you paint mosquitoes, Mike? <laughs> Basically, uh, sort of the same way you kind of do shake and bake chicken. Uh, so we had fluorescent <laughs> paint dust and uh, had some uh, uh, newly emerged mosquitoes and basically shook them in a bag with the, the paint um, dust and uh, ended up with fluorescent pink and orange mosquitoes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I want to ask you about the alternative strategies that Edmonton has been talking about. And, and I don't want to completely discount these. And I know there's been, I've been a little bit um, goofed on it a little bit. But listen, okay, even if you're in a community where you are continuing to spray, there are things that we can do um, around our properties that will help with mosquito population. But I want to ask you about the effectiveness of bat boxes and dragonflies. First of all, I don't know where you can get a dragonfly or a dragonfly population. Um, yeah, but, uh, we don't actually, we're not intending to buy dragonflies or anything along those lines. Anything you could buy would probably not be native to this area. Anyways, not really what we're uh, intending to do. The The way to encourage the dragonfly populations is by creating the habitat where uh, the dragonfly larvae can develop okay. uh, and um, increase their numbers that way. Uh, so we've been working for many years uh, with uh, what was drainage and is now EPCOR uh, in the development of a lot of stormwater facilities, making them more naturalized, uh, a better habitat for things like dragonflies to develop in with emergent vegetation uh, and the development of uh, prey, things for those. And we've found that once you build that, the dragonflies are able to find it all on their own, and they increase their numbers. So some of these stormwater facilities we go to, we can find five or six different families of dragonflies developing in a lot of these uh, stormwater ponds now. Uh, and so uh, it's continuing those sorts of efforts yeah. of naturalizations and uh, conservation of existing wetlands. Uh, it's a way to uh, increase dragonfly numbers. Um, 
that we are going to be looking at uh, the potential for uh, putting up bat boxes, seeing if that actually uh, helps to increase their numbers. Uh, but uh, uh, there are a number of those sorts of uh, activities that we're continue, continue, continuing with. Uh, and we've also looked into a lot of other uh, biological controls from uh, brook stickleback and fathead minnows to uh, little predatory worms, uh, one called mesostoma that lives in the same sort of temporary habitats where the mosquitoes develop. Um, so uh, we're doing Doing all sorts of research on biological control, biological control. All it's the time. a long game, though, right, Mike? I mean, that's that's it not going to help us this year. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the the dragonflies that have been developing for many years. Um, we don't have hard numbers on exactly yeah. how many, but we definitely see more dragonflies flying around uh, in some areas than uh, uh, we used to. So those numbers seem to be increasing pretty well. And yeah, we're definitely finding larvae developing in a lot of those ponds. But yeah, it is a long-term development. Um, in particular, uh, many dragonfly species, it can actually take them three to five years for just that individual to go f- through their larval stages and emerge as an adult. So uh, it's a, a long-term uh, uh, thing. It's not going to uh, be an immediate magic bullet. Um, the other part, the education component, you and I can handle that right now. Um, and I think, you know, there there is valuable information here, but I, I, you know, in terms of, like, they talk about, hey, if you've got, I don't know, a tire in your backyard and there's water sitting in it, mosquitoes can breed. How many mosquitoes are we talking about could actually develop in your yard, Mike? And I mean, if you had to ballpark it. Yeah, it, it's really hard to say, uh, especially uh, that didn't used to be a major development site for our mosquitoes in the Edmonton area. But just in the last few years, we've actually had a new species move into the, the region uh, called Culex pipiens, and it does utilize those sorts of habitats. Um, so we just got a, a handful of them um, a couple of years ago, uh, had it verified that it was actually that species. Last year, it was actually our number one mosquito species in all of our traps. Um, so wow. it seems to be becoming well-established and increasing in number. So it's really hard to say exactly how many there are, but it's becoming more and more important for people in their backyards to go and police those sites, take a look at them, empty out uh, anything that's collecting water, any stagnant uh, uh, water, making sure that's refreshed out of uh, uh, bird baths, things like that. Just any uh, standing water that you might have uh, lying around, get rid of it. Say again? So just any standing water, really, that you might have around yeah, the any, yard. Uh, any standing, well, well uh, standing water that's in uh, uh, sort of a, a natural ecosystem uh, thing might not be producing those uh, sorts of mosquitoes, but uh, definitely worth taking a look at and uh, seeing if there are larvae developing in there. Um, gotcha. Okay. Uh, and uh, screening off uh, things like rain barrels. Uh, stuff like that, and making sure that mosquitoes can't get into it to lay the eggs in the first place can also help reduce them. Okay, last one for you. All things considered equal, we've got Calgary continuing to spray, Edmonton stopping with spray. What kind of a difference do you anticipate that making to mosquito season if the conditions are the same? 50%, 20%, 5%? I mean, how big of an impact does that aerial spraying have, do you think? Yeah, our estimate is that uh, the ditching ground uh, has about 50% of the efficacy of our overall program. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the other half would have been the aerial program. So we are we are expecting to see an increase in those numbers. Uh, we are going to see more of those uh, mosquitoes uh, from the areas that were treated by the aerial program will be coming into the city. But uh, the, the stuff closer to the residences, near parks, all those, uh, we are controlling those with the ditch and ground crews still. Okay, Mike, great information. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. There you have it. Mike Jenkins, who is a biological sciences technician for the city of Edmonton, better known as the bug guy. This is what he does. I mean, he's out there. He's trapping them. He's monitoring them. Uh, he did a presentation to city council after after they had made their decision about what to do, and he sort of walked them through what he just walked us through, probably in more detail, obviously, in terms of what the decision that they've made to suspend the aerial spraying um, from helicopters is going to do. And he was, you know, I, he, he don't, there's some of you saying, oh, yeah, he worked for the city. What's he? Well, he's pretty accurate. He's saying you're going to have more mosquitoes in Edmonton this year. He's not, he's not towing a company line here, not at all. Uh, and when he talks about the natural remedies, I mean, he's he, this is what he does. He's a biological sciences guy. So uh, he's been doing that long before city council made their decision and monitoring how it works. But he's not saying it's going to replace things. It's a long game. So Edmonton City Council has made a decision that will have implications. There's no two ways about it. It's going to cause problems uh, for mosquitoes this year. How bad? Really depends. As Mike says, it all depends. If we have a really, really wet spring and summer, it could be a disaster. If we don't, It might not be that bad, but we won't know. We'll have to wait and see. On uh, the situation surrounding refugees and how Canada is managing it and what we might or might not want to do differently and um, more of, in fact. You know, millions and millions of Ukrainians have been forced from their homes during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I believe uh, about 11 million was the latest number that I saw displaced, some of them still within the country, but almost 5 million have fled Ukraine altogether. Um, Meanwhile, things not good in Russia either. And we can't lose sight of this. Not the same situation, I understand, but uh, Putin has clamped down on dissension in that country, throwing protesters in jail. You can't even say the word war, I think, in some locations. You get up to 15 years in jail. Uh, Shutting down all independent media, uh, really controlling the information. Uh, We know the economy is teetering, and there are people that are looking to flee that country as well. Now, already, Canada has opened the doors to Ukrainian refugees, as you know. Should we do more? Should we do more on that front? And should we do similar things for people looking to flee Russia? Our next guest says, yes. She's here to tell us why. We're going to chat now with Sabine El-Chidiak. Sabine is a political science and policy enthusiast, educational programs manager at Liberal Studies, and an ex-advisor to two Canadian immigration ministers. Sabine, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. So Canada, as we know, has thrown the doors open to Ukrainian refugees um, at this point. And I think the moral obligation is pretty clear. Most of us have a very good understanding of that situation. Um, But you say we're in a really good position to do this, and it makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels. It's a bit of a no-brainer for Canada, right? I think it is. Uh, I think it's great that we've done this emergency program. Um, Anything that helps Ukrainians get to Canada faster is great by me. (laughs) Uh, Of course, there's more that we can be doing on that front as well. Uh, For example, what we're doing right now is uh, temporary, three years long. uh, Ukrainians can come here for three years. Uh, But I think that we should be creating a distinct pathway for permanent residency, for one, uh, so that if they decide to stay at the end, they're able to do that without having to jump through a bunch of hoops um, and saying that they're a student or they're high-skilled workers or something like that. If they're here for three years, they ought to be able to stay uh, and, you know, uh, just offering a full slate of services extended to refugees to these people, even though they're coming through a tourist, um, a tourist visa situation. 
And and other things like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, in terms of, we hear this, you know, we're expediting this, we're speeding this up, we're making it easier. I'm just wondering, what are we doing and what could we be doing more? Because we are hearing reports that, you know, they are arriving here, but some of the people who are ready to welcome them here are saying, you know, we were expecting a lot more, but they got tied up in the process. It's not as smooth as people think. Um, What could we be doing a better job of? Yeah, definitely we could be doing more uh, on the uh, front of when they arrive in Canada, getting them the settlement services that they need quicker, faster. One thing that we could be doing more of is helping those that want to privately sponsor refugees in Canada to do that a lot more easily. Uh, Right now, there's so much bureaucratic red tape wrapped around that. Uh, They can't even put in applications until May, most of of the sponsorship agreement holders. And people who, uh, individuals who want to do it with, for other people, there's a group of five program where you can just get five Canadians get, get together, uh, get the funds together to bring a refugee to Canada and look after them for that first year financially and emotionally. But they have to get something like a United Nations designation uh, for that refugee, and it's just so much work to do that. If we were to just change those rules, and it's not that hard to do, uh, that'll make things a lot easier and a lot faster for these refugees to get to Canada through that. So opening up all everything to them is great every stream possible. I mean, and, and shouldn't, you know, when we talk about private sponsorships or, you know, citizens getting involved in helping with this process, we should have a, you know, a game plan. We should have a framework in place based on what happened with Syria. That's how a lot of the uh, refugees from Syria were brought into this country. So, I mean, it's not like we're starting from scratch, right? No, we're not. And I've been, I've, I've been calling for this for a long time. Just, there, there's small changes that you can make that can make the process a lot easier. And if this crisis shows us anything, it's that we really have to have every single process that we possibly can open uh, in a time of crisis like this. Um, now, the interesting uh, point that you make in your piece, and uh, I'm, not everybody agrees with you in the audience. Some do, but some don't. And that is Russia. Um, we know that there's all kinds of pressures on the people of Russia right now. And um, has the Canadian government done anything to change, you know, what might be done or could be done to help people wanting to flee Russia? Nothing yet. So uh, my co-author, we, we, Ilya Soman and I, we just released something in the Golden Mail talking about this. And um, what we're arguing is that there are Russians who need to get out. Dissidents and journalists who are standing up against Putin's war, uh, they are in a lot of danger. If they need to leave the country, if they wish to leave the country, they should be able to come to Canada. But also the technical, professional, young, multilingual Russians who don't want any part of the war, those are people that could come to Canada and really benefit our economy, uh, you know, start a new life here if they wish. Uh, they don't want to be part of this. They're not part of it. And as you said, Shay, earlier, you said that uh, they can go to jail for 15 years just for saying the word war yeah. uh, or invasion. I mean, this is the kind of thing that they're up against. So, of course, we should be considering bringing Russians here that are against this war. Now, the moral obligation there, is it the same? Or, I mean, obviously, we're in a position here where the Ukrainians that we're helping are fleeing, um, risking life and limb to get out of a country that's under military attack. So do you think the moral obligation is somewhat different to that threshold than it is for what we're seeing with the people of Russia. I mean, uh, are their lives threatened? How big of a gap is there between the moral obligation for the two countries? Certainly anybody who's being threatened with imprisonment or perhaps uh, more than that. We don't really know what's going on uh, in Russia with 
with people that are defending the war. Um, morally, we should be bringing people to Canada if they want to come to get away from an authoritarian regime. The authoritarian regime is in Russia. They, there's people that are uh, that are being oppressed by this authoritarian regime in Russia, and those people in Ukraine are also being oppressed and killed by this authoritarian regime. Should also be. Uh, accepted in Canada. So I think that we are able to accept Ukrainians and, ref- and Russian refugees, so why not do it? Um, we know that there's overwhelming support among the Canadian population for the Ukrainian refugees. Has there been any um, investigation into how Canadians would feel about welcoming Russian refugees on top of that? I haven't seen anything uh, any, any anything out there um, talking about that yet. I'd love to see the numbers on that. But I think that once you explain to Canadians that uh, you know, these are dissidents, they're journalists who are standing up against Putin's war. These are young people who are just IT professionals for the most part, who just want to continue working, want to get out of there so they're not hurt by this war as well, or, or just want to immigrate to a new country and start a new life and get away from this authoritarian regime. Um, I bet that a lot of people will probably agree that that's the right thing to do. Yeah, really, really interesting discussion. Sabine, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me here. That is Sabine L. Chidiak, who is a political science and policy enthusiast, an educational programs manager at Liberal Studies, and an ex-advisor to two Canadian immigration ministers. Is she right? Now that you know the situation, and we do know what the story is when it comes to um, people in Russia, do we think that it's um, something that we'd like to do? Would you be interested in opening the doors? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.